Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, the politics podcast that likes to call a spad a spad. I am Alex Andreo on my Romaniacs presenting debut, so be nice. Helping me pilot the HMS liberal elite this week are two of our regulars. Yasmin Serhan is a staff writer for The Atlantic and a resident What Has Trump Done Now correspondent. Yasmin, hello. What has Trump done now? <laughs> Gosh, it might be easier to say what he hasn't done, um, to be honest. I mean, just looking at the past couple of days, I mean, he hasn't condemned the recent police shooting of Jacob Blake, a 29-year-old black man in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a shooting which prompted protests, which further prompted uh, the killing of, of two protesters by um, an allegedly, I should say, by a 17-year-old vigilante. What he did do was appear to defend the gunman. And on, on the flip side, his Democratic opponent, uh, Joe Biden, has condemned the violence both in Kenosha as well as in Portland, Oregon, where um, over the weekend there were further clashes between a pro-Trump caravan and counter-protesters, which resulted in one of the, the pro-Trump demonstrators being killed. So uh, effectively, what the president has done, or appears to be doing anyway, is um, kind of stoking sort of the division in the country as a means of kind of, you know, furthering his bid. He's kind of set his stall as the law and order president, who at the moment is presiding over much disorder and violence. Um, and his pitch mm. to voters, it seems, is if you don't want what's currently happening under me, you should vote for me again. It's <laughs> it's not great, is it? <laughs> no, it, it, it? It feels like the east bit of the country is underwater, the west bit is on fire, and the middle bit is in civil war. Is that a, it, a fair summary? There's a lot going on at the moment, none of it good. Um <laughs> I, I watching it from afar is, is a bit concerning and and weirdly enough and it suddenly I mean at first it was the pandemic but then as you say you add all those things and now I got I don't know what concerns me more the fact that my house might be on fire in California or that yeah my friends are bracing storms it's just it's a lot yeah on a slight tangent a former BBC executive and comms director for Theresa May has announced he's raising money for GB News, which he's calling an alternative to the woke, wet BBC. Uh, do you think a Fox News style broadcaster could compete here in the UK? I mean, I'm trying to think about what an alternative to woke and wet is. Is it like uninformed and dry? Is that like, I don't actually, <laughs> sleep, you know. Dry, but asleep. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think obviously Brits are no stranger to Rupert Murdoch associated news outlets. I mean, the difference that I think is that, you know, while Americans are used to getting kind of more of their sort of slanted sensationalist coverage from TV broadcasters. You know, I'm thinking like Fox and MSNBC, those sorts of channels. I think Brits are more accustomed to getting it from print. So I guess the real question is, are is the UK in the market for like a televised version of, of The Sun and The Daily Mail? Mm. I, I don't necessarily know if that's what GB News is going for, but that's always been kind of the difference to me between sort of the UK and the US press. Mm. Um, but my guess is that, you know, given all the criticism that the BBC seems to get from everyone being at once too pro-Brexit and too anti-Brexit. Um, I, I suppose there, there, there is probably, you know, some viewers, there, there would be some viewers for that sort of thing. Well, what I don't know, though, is how they would um, conform with the impartiality rules that you have in this country when it comes to broadcasts of that sort. Yeah. Uh, my next panelist is the editor of politics.co.uk, author of How to Be a Liberal, out very soon and available to pre-order now, our very own Profanosaurus Rex, it's Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. Hey, man. Ian, 
cinephiles and comic book fans in in particular were shocked and saddened over the weekend by the passing of uh, Black Panther actor Chadwick Boseman, aged just 43. Um, What sort of legacy do you think he leaves behind? I mean, it's hard to overstate, isn't it? Just to look at the response. I spent a lot of that day just sort of looking at videos of of people and just sort of <laughs> crying basically because it was mm. what what he produced and that's not just they put a black superhero on screen it's not just that like you had to convince the audience you had to make the audience believe in him it's, it's not just a matter of the outside it's a matter of the internals of a personality yeah 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 and he gave him this kind of it was quite understated but he gave him this kind of sort of lilting solidity it, like it was in the accent it was he was kind of regal but mournful and proud but also playful and violent but also gentle it was it was actually quite an extraordinary performance and i think the more you watch that film the more you realize just how grounded around him it was mm. and it's- i was i watched it again yesterday um and he seems sort of lit from the inside yeah. Oh God, that's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. He, he, he absolutely nailed it. I mean, the, the character is a very good character anyway. Charlie is a fascinating character. And there are, of course, like a lot of black superheroes that, which really do deserve some time on the, on the screen. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, reading X-Men comics in the eighties, Storm was already the leader of the X-Men. Now Storm has been treated very badly by the films. It's been quite a rubbish character. She's actually fascinating. She was actually his wife in the comics and there's plenty of others, but like really when you look at, okay. So to take the positive of, of, of of the event and of what we saw over the weekend is when you look at the response and the sense of pride that it gave many people, how much it meant to them, you realize there's a lot of nonsense spoken about superheroes, which is, you know, the sort of thing of, oh, aren't they quite sort of fascistic really? And then they deal with all problems with violence. It's just like, yeah, no, thank you very much. I mean, what a fascinating opinion you've developed. But like, actually what you see is that people can find something extremely important to them in these great vast kind of greek myths that they see and the next place i mean to me to look is is there is a character called kamala khan in marvel comics who's ms marvel who's a muslim girl from new jersey and i am dying for them to put her in these films i think the moment that we have a muslim superhero is going to be a really seminal moment for us sort of culturally now you look around online you see you know right now that they're fucking putting together the snyder cut of justice league because that film above all things obviously needed to have less jokes and be even longer than it was i mean and that is happening you know because of because of the the pressure online right now if that is happening because of the pressure online what i would suggest to people is put some fucking pressure on them to make a kamala khan movie because that right now would be such a joyful useful pop culture moment for us. And if this weekend has taught us anything positive, it it can be that. Back to uh, politics. Uh, Data this week (laughs) claims that the housing market is booming. What's going on? Well, it hasn't really... I mean, the housing market behaves in extremely strange ways. (laughs) It hasn't ever really crashed on that. Um, I wonder how much of this... You know, like there's one theory with this stuff, with housing in general, which is that ultimately this comes down to interest rates more even than supply. And yeah. that where you have persistently low interest rates and historically, you know, for, from sort of late 80s, they've been very, very low, all of which is related ultimately to, to government bonds. Um, you tend to just get people that can afford to, you know, 
that, that's going to increase demand for, for housing. And I suspect because that variable, which is one that we don't talk about very much in relation to housing, is staying the same. That it's not responding necessarily as a market in, in the way that we would presume it did. By the way, I've never jumped from Marvel Comics to talking about government bonds quite so quickly, although they are two of my favorite topics. Well, you yeah, have yeah. now, Han. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest this week is Steve Richards, a columnist, commentator and broadcaster, as well as toast of the Edinburgh Festival with his own one-man show, Rock and Roll Politics. In his new book, The Prime Minister's Leadership from Wilson to Johnson, he tackles every PM for pretty much the last half century. If you're listening on Friday, the book is out tomorrow, the 5th of September. Steve, welcome to Romaniacs. Thank you very much. In the book, you describe your introduction to politics as a teenage Hercule Poirot, <laughs> investigating the disappearance of Harold Wilson's popularity in the mid-70s. Uh, you, you write about the media perceiving him as, to quote you, exhausted by leadership. Nowadays, our political readers are more Cluzo than Poirot, but similar things are being said about Johnson. Do you think the return of Parliament will give him the stage he needs to bounce back from the last few months? No. Uh, he's a very poor parliamentary performer, as this week's Prime Minister's questions showed vividly. He's never been a good parliamentary performer, Johnson. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the Prime Ministers I covered, I think the only one in a very different way who was as weak as him in the chamber was his immediate predecessor, Theresa May. He cannot frame an argument. He cannot think quickly. And they are two of the requirements when you're uh, answering Prime Minister's questions or indeed dealing with difficult questions elsewhere in the House of Commons, especially when he has weak ammunition to begin with, which he does on a whole range of issues. Yeah. Uh, he, he is not a good parliamentary performer. So no, Parliament will not be the location of a revival <laughs> if there is the decent <laughs> yeah, this week was uh, awful. We're recording right after PMQs. It was like a, a, a lost to Ronnie's mastermind sketch where his specially subject is answering <laughs> the questions I prepared for. Um, what, what do you make of the Times scoop that, according to Dominic Cummings' father-in-law, Johnson will step down in January? Well, that's to do with uh, his health, uh, uh, so the rumour goes. I find all the stories about his health to be red herrings. If he hadn't had the virus, he would be as he is now. Mm -hmm. He's just wholly unsuited for the demands of being prime minister. And the, the demands are epic in ordinary times. They are even more so now. I think he faces bigger challenges than any of the other prime ministers I write about. Mm. And he's just wholly ill-equipped in every respect of his personality uh, to meet those challenges. And I think that would be the case if he's 100% fit, if he's still really knackered from the virus or whatever. Honestly, if he was 100% fit, uh, this would be the sort of Johnson figure we would be getting. Mm. So I've no idea about the state of his health, but I'm pretty sure it's a red herring. We'll, we'll be talking uh, at length about the, the demands of the job in your book 
later in the programme. On the show this week, back to life, back to reality, back from a fantasy year. But what world awaits those returning to schools, offices and the Houses of Parliament? What political curveballs are heading Boris Johnson's way at the end of the transition approaches? And what screeching U-turns have the government yet to make? We offer our predictions. Summer is well and truly over. It's time for all those naughty truants to deflate their paddling pools, fold away their trampolines, sharpen their crayons, press their school ties and present themselves for assembly. I am, of course, referring to MPs returning to Parliament. Action in the House of Commons resumed on Tuesday with a statement from the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, announcing that England's track and trace is in the top tranche, a slight downgrade from world-beating. Meanwhile, an opinion poll puts Labour in the Tories neck and neck on 40%, a lead of 26 points vanished in precisely one year of Boris Johnson. Still, isn't he a character? Ian, Parliament needs to pass at least five big Brexit bills before the end of the transition, including on agriculture and the dreaded fisheries. Even with a large majority, is there enough time physically to force all of it through before December? Yeah, I wouldn't. Yes. And I wouldn't focus on that as the problem. I mean, I think they'll be able to get the legislation through, I mean, we've we've had a couple of instances recently where people have been passing legislation far quicker than that. I mean, for instance, over coronavirus. Um, and most of that, I mean, we have pretty good ideas now, you know, on immigration, um, on the on the environment, although they're going to make, they might arguably, depending where the level playing field debate ends up, be stuffing things into that environment bill um, and mm. the same with trade. But ultimately, the problem won't be getting the legislation through. That was the kind of problem we had under Theresa May, where the numbers were tighter. The, the problem really is going to be, you know, in the negotiating room. The time to secure a comprehensive deal with the EU is fast running out, if not already run out, and the sticking points of the level playing field and fisheries remain. Do we have a better idea now of exactly how much this government cares about preventing no deal? No. Um, I keep on asking people as I'm talking to them about Brexit, you know, sort of trade experts or trade negotiators or sort of legal experts, you know, what is your, my instinctive last question always at the end when we're chatting, it's just, oh, what what do you give it? Like, what's your percentages for deal, no deal? And... I have to say, I would I would say over half of them put it below fifty percent chance of a deal. Um, the others are pretty much exclusively saying fifty fifty. I remain sort of of, of the position that I, I do still think a deal is more likely than no deal um, for exclusively political reasons, um, which is that ultimately I do still think that if you say no. People, what we demonstrated with the withdrawal agreement um, in sort of the tail end of last year was people don't really give a shit what's in the deal. Mm. What they care about is, is there a deal? Once you get a deal, they sort of act like that is a success in its own right. And such are the fucking depths to which our standards as a country have now reached. Um, now, in this case, I suspect they're going to think, well, just a no deal makes us look bad. I know there's, a, there's some people that sort of say, well, they think they can turn this into all oh, those dastardly Europeans. But it just seems to me that right in the middle of coronavirus, with any other sort of emergencies we might have over the winter, you know, like flooding or, or whatever, to have that take place and for it to be in any way sort of judgeable on the government seems to me to be a problem that they all want to avoid. There's also this other element, and this is the bit that's becoming a bit clearer, of the, this stuff that's being said about how much Cummings cares about state aid and procurement. 
because on fisheries and on level playing field, I kind of I I think you can see landing zones on on both. I I don't see that a deal really gets held up on that. I think it gets held up on state aid, and um, and this is. Like I have to tell you, quite an insane position to be in. Because if you look, I mean, just take what's happened over coronavirus with state aid. Because of course, right, we're still in transition. So we've had, for all the things we've done to prop up industry here, we had to notify the commission about it under state aid rules. And yet, funny enough, there's been no news reports about it, right? Why have there been no news reports? Because it all fucking went through. And the reason it all went through is because the EU has a really good state aid system that has flexibility built into it. Like if you go and read Article 107 of the Treaty of the Functioning of the EU, which obviously I do all the time, mostly because I find <laughs> it a very sensual and pleasing experience, you see it's full of exemptions, right? You have exemptions for promoting economic development where the standard of living is low. You have exemptions for sort of need to promote employment. And most importantly, you have it to remedy serious economic impact, right? And that is exactly the kind of things you've been doing. So now you get you get these reports of, oh, Cummings doesn't like state aid because it would prevent us from dealing with coronavirus, all reported, you know, without any critical sort of assessment whatsoever by the press. And you just sort of think, well, actually, on that basis, you couldn't possibly make the argument for why this would be especially important. On procurement, you look at the fucking, the absolute shambles they got themselves into, you know, during COVID with various bits of hospital equipment and various to the response on procurement and it's like a masterclass in why you really should take your fucking time with procurement you should do things carefully and diligently but again it seems that these are the two parts that they're most intent on coming out of so even though i still think it looks like it's it's i still think it's most likely there's going to be a deal on those two areas that does seem to be the bit that might arguably be pushing them beyond the politics towards no deal mm. Steve, um, a lot has been made of Keir Starmer's reluctance to be drawn on certain issues. Um, as someone applying to lead the country, do you think he's doing the right thing by biding his time like this, or should he be more active in offering his steer on all current issues? Well, I think broadly he's uh, got, I suppose you're referring mainly to Brexit. And I think at the moment, but not for much longer, he's okay not to intervene and watch the government head towards whichever direction they're going to go. And as Ian suggests, it really, it's kind of 50-50, no deal or deal. But then he will have to come in uh, and, and come in big time. But Silence at the moment, I think, is okay, because when you think about it, this government has got a big majority in the House of Commons, so he cannot change events in the House of Commons as, bizarrely, Corbyn could, because it was a hung parliament. Mm. Uh, Similarly, if he was to say something on Brexit, he would not change the course of events. It's not as if Johnson will say, oh, have you seen old Starmer? So there's, we better do it. <laughs> yeah. so, he might actually push the opposition together like, on, on issues in which there, which there are issues. Yeah, so uh, silence is fine for now, but you cannot be credible as an alternative prime minister at the key moment when, uh, and it's coming up, when we have a sense of what is going to emerge from this flimsy negotiation between, you know, the UK's Brexit negotiator and the EU. At that point, silence is incredible. And I think he knows that and realises that. But at the moment, it's it's fine. I think he is judging quite well uh, what to focus on and 
when. Uh, he's been criticised uh, internally for not making many more waves, but he's got at least four years of this. It's very hard to win an election when you've become leader of the opposition at the beginning of a parliament. No Labour leader has pulled that one off, and it's partly about getting the rhythm right. Yeah. And I think so far he has. How, how long do you think Johnson can keep this current cabinet intact when they are, um, your description in the book is a group of shallow radicals? Um, reshuffling too soon would be an admission that they're all nincompoops, but he also needs somehow to appear to take action. Well, it's the, it's the number 10 operation, which is a group of uh, shallow revolutionaries, on, uh, I think I, I call them. Uh, the cabinet itself is a largely subservient body selected because of their willingness to be subservient. And that dynamic can remain in place as long as the prime minister is commanding or appears to be commanding. Now, commanding means many different things. Johnson will never be a commander in terms of policy detail or implementation. But when you've won a near landslide election, that gives you an authority to do what you want. Now, that is just about still in place. But the reason why these polls, which you've mentioned, are quite significant is that polls, although often proven to be wrong, determine the way everyone is seen. And if, it's still an if, but if Labour moves into an opinion poll lead this autumn consistently, I think his authority, even over this very subservient, fearful cabinet, every minister, including incidentally Rishi Sunak, terrified of Cummings, etc., that will change if Johnson looks like a vote loser rather than a vote winner. Mm. And, uh, I mean, arguably the only thing that the only thing that penetrates a narcissistic personality is the notion that they're disliked. So so I think those polls are quite important. Yasmin, um, the government is pressing ahead with the reopening of schools, which could lead to further lockdowns in other areas. Some epidemiologists have suggested that basic science dictates one must change one factor at a time to assess their effect. Yet the government is pushing people back to the office, children back to schools, and students to universities, the single largest annual movement of people within the UK, all in the same month. Johnson took time off last weekend from cosplaying Bob the Builder to say that the government has a moral duty to keep schools open. Chris Whitty, meanwhile, is using the language of trade-offs in relation to a possible second wave. What do you expect may be sacrificed to ensure schools stay open? It's it's a good question. I mean, the way I interpreted um, Whitty's trade-offs remark was that, you know, in a, in a battle between, say, pubs and restaurants versus schools, that, that schools would win out. And, you know, I think there's definitely a case to be made that the importance of keeping a for the importance of keeping schools open, not just for students whose obviously whose whose educations have been impacted, but also for their parents, um, particularly their working parents who've been balancing everything for these last uh, God knows how many months. But but yeah, I mean, it, it really does feel like we're kind of trying to go full steam ahead back into a sense of normalcy. And while I think you know 
I think a lot of people can, you know, sort of get behind the idea that we need to get kids back in school, that this argument that, you know, we need to kind of do everything else at the same time. And going back to the office also means getting back on the tube. Um, I personally am not <laughs> very much ready to do that. But, you know, something Chris Whitty said, uh, I'm trying to remember when, but he said that the idea that we can open up everything and keep the virus under control is clearly wrong. And that yeah. seems to be flying in the face of kind of what the government is asking us to do at the moment. So, you know, it, I think it logically would make sense that, you know, if we if we have this very sort of testy situation where cases are rising, that we'd want to tweak one factor at a time. At the moment, it feels like we're the, the ask is that we should tweak three or four. And I could understand why that's quite scary for some people. So, but what are the pressure valves for letting, you know, letting air out of that situation? Get, might he re reclose pubs and clubs or will it be encouraging people to go back to home working i mean that would just seem bizarre yeah it's i mean i the the thing that i think is that, i mean at the moment home working is is working at the moment i mean people have been doing it for a while they you know they've kind of gotten accustomed to it this of course applies to to the industries that can do this but yeah i mean i i would imagine that the government would would be quite loath to kind of shut down pubs and and restaurants altogether i think the, the appeal of local lockdowns um is is quite strong in that respect but yeah i mean when when you put it between you know keep our kids in schools or go have a pint on a friday night with your friends I feel like it's hard to make a case for the latter. I mean, I strongly, like spiritually, support making a case for the latter, but I gather that (laughs) we're just not ready for it. Um, Rishi Sunak has earned uh, plaudits for his general largesse in schemes like Eat Out to Help Out. Will old school, low tax Thatcherites just have to get used to the fact that government intervention will be necessary for months or perhaps years to come? Yeah, I mean, look, this is just, you know, a completely unprecedented crisis. And I, and I think folks have widely come around to this idea that desperate times call for desperate measures. You know, I think things like Eat Out to Help Out and the Job Retention Scheme have been massively helpful in, in forestalling an economic collapse that, you know, we're already expecting to see on a global scale. I, I think the question is kind of what comes next. And we're not really going to know the final bill until after this crisis passes. So I think the arguments that will probably take place between those who are quite supportive of the government's measures versus those who perhaps think they're spending too much is going to take place then. And and more crucially, you know, how they go about paying for for that bill. Hmm. Um, I I imagine, you know, I'm no economist, of course, but I imagine, you know, every country is going to be facing this, you know, choice of increasing their borrowing, raising taxes or cutting spending, probably a combination of the three. But, you know, it feels really hard to kind of have that argument right now while the crisis is still in place. Ian, uh, many Tory MPs appear to be getting a bit nervous uh, about the taxes Sunak might have to introduce (laughs) in in the coming month. What sort of changes could he get away with, given the balance he has to strike between those new Red Wall MPs and the more traditional small state hawks? Honestly, it's actually quite hard to work out and you don't envy being in his position. I mean, like so far this week, you know, we're really, I mean, the sun is gunning for him on two of them, on fuel duty and national insurance insurance contributions for the self-employed. And I sort of suspect those are both dead now um after not much effort i mean foreign aid is the other one that sort of tip but there is a there's a bit of a kickback against that um you'd be mad to try and do it through vat right now because 
you, the last thing you want is to discourage people from spending. Yeah, and it's um, quite a regressive tax as well. Yeah, it's a regressive tax. Yeah, exactly. But but even just in terms of the problem that he's being presented with, rather than sort of, you know, even the political values going into it. Um, and the same, I mean, with austerity, they've kind of blocked themselves off from just cutting spending in that manner, because they, they've made rather a big deal of the fact that, well, we, we don't do austerity anymore, which has a kind of a moral lesson in it, by the way, which is that the Conservatives, you know, decided to do austerity as an ideological project when it frankly wasn't required and are now unable to have that avenue open to them at a moment where actually a little bit in the future it might actually be a bit more helpful to, to do something like that um you'd look they at, went too soon didn't they, they did. yes indeed and, and you know there is a fable to be told about that manner um i mean you could possibly you know things like capital gains tax um or a raid on pensions relief, which, but the thing is, that is going to get, that is going to see them all kinds of fucked up from Tory MPs. They're going to get the shit kicked out of them there. So it's, it's, it is really hard to see what, how he's going to, how he's going to approach that. But again, you should also add, you know, economically, the truth is, this is not the time to be doing that. You do this stuff when you think the crisis has passed, when you think that demand is back to where it would normally be and you can afford to do it, doing it now would be too early anyway. But th- being that as it is, I don't, I, honestly, given the political situation in which he finds himself in and the economic one, it's hard to see what he goes for. Mm. We shall watch with trepidation and relish. <laughs> Let us now turn to this week's guest, uh, Steve Richards, and his new book, The Prime Minister's Leadership from Wilson to Johnson. It's an oft-abused cliche, but I genuinely couldn't put it down, which was bloody inconvenient when I was having a shower. Um, Steve, (laughs) in opening, you suggest that Boris Johnson's life-threatening encounter with COVID-19 has already transformed the way he governs. In what ways do you think it has changed him? I, I think I argue transformed the way he was perceived in, in, in a way that I found illuminating and alarming because uh, in the past, everything about Johnson is different. In the past, when a prime minister fell ill, it was seen as a terrible sign of weakness that had to be covered up. Uh, Johnson, it was reported, and he hit the ratings for him soared. And the way the news was then framed was, how could can the country cope without him while he's in hospital? With the implication that we were being governed by this great titan. And for a period of time, it was completely forgotten that he had been late to lockdown, that he hadn't attended the COBRA meeting. Uh, that he had been characteristically neglectful and distant from urgent, fast-moving events. So falling ill changed the way he was perceived. And, you know, political editors, how is he? You know, who's taking decisions? As if we had lost this imperious titan of great genius. <laughs> and a complete distortion. <laughs> to be and- fair, compared to Dominic Raab, <laughs> well, yeah, um, that helped. That helped the framing. But um, I found it very interesting that with Johnson, everything has turned on its head. So like when Macmillan uh, fell ill, he had to resign, even though it wasn't fatal and he lived for many years to come. Anthony Eden, the same. He was ill. He ended up resigning over sewage, but but it was partly related to illness. 
and he it made them seem weak. Uh, and what I learned writing the Johnson chapter for this paper back is that everything, all assumptions are overturned, of which that's one example. You know, to give another, when he first became prime minister, it was a hung parliament. All prime ministers in a hung parliament woo internal dissenters, woo opposition parties, try to sort of keep things on the road. Uh, he did the exact opposite. He expelled people from the party, you know, turned Philip Hammond into a sort of revolutionary dissenter. Um, Oliver, he kicked them all out. He didn't woo other parties. He did the opposite. Um, we are dealing with someone wholly different from all the prime ministers of the past, even though, of course, they were unique in their own ways. This one is absolutely uh, unusual, weird and unique. Well, you you write that uh, the best prime ministers certainly are also teachers who sort of guide the country through difficult times. What is Johnson teaching the country at the moment? Well, again, I, I say the election-winning prime ministers are natural teachers, and it seems to be the only common factor between the big winners, uh, which in our modern era is Harold Wilson, who won. He always used to show off, hey, won four elections out of five. Um, he did. Thatcher <laughs> uh, won three, Blair won three, and they were all natural storytellers. They m- made sense of what they were doing, even if what they were doing was nonsensical. You know, so Thatcher, without any spin doctors, used to reduce monetarism to, you know, my father ran a grocer's shop and he never, ever spent more than he earned and a country can't spend more than it earns. Mm. It was economic rubbish, but it sounded accessible and clear. Mm. And that applies. Now, Johnson, he has won a big election uh, victory. and But again, all assumptions turned on their head. I don't think he is an effective storyteller. He is a an entertainer and a sloganizer. So get Brexit done was a slogan that gave him a landslide in December. And all credit to him for it. I mean, he's a winner in election terms. But I don't think actually he's a teacher. We were talking earlier about him in the House of Commons. Anyone listening to his performance at Prime Minister's Questions this week will not get a sense of purpose or what he's up to or why he's mm. up to. Um, so he's not a teacher, but I have to acknowledge he's won the mayoral election in London. He won the Tory leadership contest. He's now won a landslide election. So he has an appeal to voters that is is very unusual and, again, doesn't really fit in with the picture of other prime ministers. This, this is maybe where I disagree with your remark at the top of the programme that COVID uh, hasn't changed the the sort of the prime minister we would have got from Boris Johnson because it seems to me that in that vital respect the the storytelling the rhythm building that you were talking about with Starmer he was interrupted in full flow and he hasn't been able to find his feet again. Uh, well, no, I do disagree with that because I don't think there was a fully flowing narrative before he fell ill. His early appearances at the press conferences in Downing Street before he fell ill were uh, unimpressive, were hesitant, um, uh, uh, unclear of message. Mm. Um, so we'll have to, I do disagree with you. I think that the the illness had one huge impact on him. He made him it made him realise how serious 
COVID was. You know, he, he is a self-absorbed figure. When he got it, he certainly realized this was a huge, huge crisis um, beyond himself. Uh, so that changed him. But no, I don't think he would have been one of the great political teachers of our lifetime if he hadn't got COVID. Now, on Thatcher, you zero in on council housing and the poll tax as two of her policies, the effects of which are still sort of felt uh, around the country. Which elements of Brexit policy might we still be talking about 40 years from now? All of it. Uh, We're living, take COVID out of it, we're still living through history because Brexit is so profound on so many different levels. The way our economy functions, the way we see ourselves in relation to the rest of the world, the way we deal with security matters, with the way we deal with immigration matters, the way it's going to have a huge impact on our standard of living and the fate of certain sectors of the British economy. So I think that Brexit will uh, fascinate historians, not just in 40 years' time, but 200 years' time. And in 40 years' time, we will still be living with the direct consequences, whatever deal emerges, but also with kind of wider consequences. All that energy and money spent trying to get Britain out of something that was quite useful to it, when that focus could have been on how does Britain deal with elderly care? How does Britain have a well-resourced NHS? Mm. And all these things have just been totally obscured by this mad obsession with Brexit. So I think it will uh, hover uh, for many years to come in all its manifestations. Opportunity costs uh, are always uh, ignored. Exactly. Hardest to measure, but really important. I I found this this point you made about Theresa May really fascinating. You say that she was poorly equipped for number 10 because she spent most of her ministerial career in the Home Office. If one were looking at the position of PM sanely as a very difficult job, what would you say is the optimal preparation? What would we as a country list under essential in that job ad? Well, if you were doing it as a job ad, you know, rationally rather as than what does happen, which is all kind of wholly irrational, who ends up getting it. I think you would say a period as chancellor, so you had a mastery of economic policymaking and also a sense of how the treasury works, which is not always um, for, the, for the good. And ideally, you'll have been in one uh, spending department, like education or health, and that would give you a sense of both ends, you know, the, the focus on the treasury sound money culture, but then the need sometimes to spend and invest and deal with the demands of a department. I think one of the things that kept Thatcher slightly reined in at times was her experience as education secretary, where actually she campaigned for quite high budgets and um, was aware of some of the constraints when she moved into number 10 uh, as to what can be achieved within each individual department. Uh, if she hadn't had that job, she'd, I think she'd have been crazy mm. uh, in number 10. But th- that 
gave her a sense of the limits of what can be done in a department. Um, so that would be the combination that would make an ideal prime minister. Interestingly, uh, it's it's rarely the case. A lot of our prime ministers have no experience of government whatsoever. Blair, Cameron, Thatcher was only education secretary, no economic experience. Brown only had the chancellorship, although that was good preparation for the crash when he was prime minister. It's It's interesting how few who make it have those qualifications, and many of those who don't make it and who ache for it did have those good qualifications. Off the top of my head, John Major is the only one I can think that fulfills that criteria. Uh, yeah, but he was he did he delivered one budget as chancellor. He was chancellor <laughs> for about ten minutes. Okay, sort of. Ish. <laughs> I. And so it was, you know, he wasn't there long enough in in any of those jobs. You also wonder what might have happened if David Cameron pressed on after his defeat on the referendum, as Wilson did. Ponder the imponderable for us. Where would we be now if if he had? I think uh, a split Tory party, but he, he would have tried, he's said this on the record, for some kind of Norway type. Brexit. And so if he had succeeded, big, big if, we would be in a better place than the ultra hard Brexit that's being contemplated at the moment. But I don't think he would have been in a strong enough position to deliver what he wanted. Um, having lost the referendum, uh, he, he, his authority was completely wiped out. Mm. Let me invite the panel to ask a few questions. Yasmin? Yeah. um, So, Steve, prime ministers have been accused of being in the pockets of the presidents they worked for. Uh, For Tony Blair, it was Bush, who I believe in in your book, you mentioned that some in the press used to refer to him as Bush's poodle. Um, And for Johnson, it's Donald Trump, who, as we all know, refers to his British counterpart as British Trump. Do you think it's possible for modern prime ministers to properly govern on their own terms outside the special relationship? I do if they uh, choose to do so. And as you suggest, most of them don't for various reasons. Um, For example, I think Blair could have broken with Bush over Iraq. It wouldn't have been easy for him. Uh, In fairness to Blair, uh, that that what if was rarely posed. What if he had broken with America before the invasion? What would have happened? That too would have split the Labour Party in a different way. But yeah, I think if Prime Minister's choose to keep a distance in the same way that, as you know better than me, some US presidents do not prioritise British prime ministers, they would find it perfectly uh, feasible. It's going to be harder now we've left the European Union because we're this pathetic little island on its own and probably, therefore, the the so-called special relationship will acquire a greater importance. You can see now the desperate laughing around over a US trade deal just to get that sort of protective shield as they would uh, see it. But um, I I think it would be perfectly feasible. It's going to be very interesting if Biden wins. You know, was it one of the uh, Bushes, I think the the senior Bush, who first of all uh, made contact with uh, whoever was German chancellor at the time, Cole? Uh, not the British Prime Minister, you know, either, and the British get so neurotic about it. Um, <laughs> but it just shows that you know it's not always the America uh, president choice to turn to Britain. So yeah, I think Britain could easily function 
Hugh, Hugh Grant did fine in Love, actually. I'm just throwing this out there. <laughs> Only in Hollywood. Um, yeah, it, 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 does, it does seem quite strange to me that now a relationship going forward um, basically is based on chlorinated chicken um, and and how willing you are to eat it. But, um, but yeah, to, <laughs> towards... Towards the end of your book, you argue that leadership in the UK has become much more presidential. Um, when did that start to happen and, and why do you think that is? Yeah, it's very interesting because we have a party-based system, but a media culture which is ho- virtually wholly presidential, focusing on mm-hmm. the lead and virtually no one else. And sort of working on the assumption that as leaders, they can act like presidents when, of course, they can't. Um, and I think it began to be quite like this with Thatcher, who was such a dominant leader of her party and prime minister and such an unusual personality that much of the certainly printed press adored, that the focus became on her. Uh, and it was such a shock in a way when she was removed from power by her party because it was a reminder that she wasn't a president. She was wholly dependent on party and then it certainly continued with the rise of Blair who who sought to dominate in the same way as her and so I think it's been the era also of the expanding you know 24-hour television news how best to capture drama shots of the leaders you know Corbyn leaving his house looking pissed off um, and you know Johnson going on a jog from his house and listening to it kind of captures something very easily but it is a distortion if a party turns on a leader in britain they are finished um, as we might see who knows with uh, uh johnson in mm. the coming years um but i the, the the definitely is look tomorrow you know or whenever people are listening to this podcast it will be johnson starmer uh starmer johnson um it it, it feels very presidential to me there's always this very relationship isn't there between especially labor leader especially the manner in which labor people talk about the relationship between the leader and the media um i mean with tony blair you know put a lot of effort into getting on with the media did rather well you know jeremy corbyn treated them as some kind of enemy conspiracy front did rather badly and now we see lots of complaints from the left of the labor party about sort of you know keir starmer writing for the daily mail or going for an op-ed in the telegraph i mean what is Ultimately, is it is it as simple as the fact that a Labour a Labour leader cannot become prime minister unless they get the press on side, or is that simplistic? I still, even in the sort of multi social media age, don't think that is simplistic because uh, even now, when fewer people buy newspapers, they can frame the way politics is perceived, and that's certainly I know I've worked there. Uh, a lot that influences the way the BBC covers things. They're not overtly biased, but they're influenced by what the Times, mm. Telegraph, and the Mail are saying. And so I think, uh, you know, I don't want to sound kind of like 150, but when Blair, as leader of the opposition, famously flew out to speak at Murdoch's conference in Australia, uh, a three-day trip just to please Murdoch. I was at the BBC at the time. They sent me with him, and it was an insane trip, 24 hours there. He made a speech on the Hayman Island or something and then flew back. But I understood why, um, because I think his newspapers had had an impact on the fate of various Labour leaders in their relentless hostility. 
And he succeeded at first in neutering that and then getting their support. And I think that was a factor in the whole mix. So I, I think Starmer is right in entering that terrain of the telegraph and the mail. And if he doesn't get their backing, uh, he will at least... You can't sort of slaughter someone who is contributing to your pages on a regular basis. So I, I, what do you think? I, mean, I think it is an issue to this very day. It is, yeah, I mean, on that basis, shouldn't Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings actually starting to become quite concerned now at just how regular and how vitriolic some of the attacks on them are in, for instance, the Daily Mail and even this week, The, the, the Sun? So, I mean, they seem confident, but this there has to come a point where you think, hang on a minute, there there really is starting to become a bit of a problem here, and this should be our natural place of support. Yeah, I mean, I think they should be worried. I think Johnson is. He's quite personally sensitive. Um, I was with him once. I used to co-present a a BBC Radio 4 programme with him. This is years ago, in the late 90s. And he read something that was critical of him as a broadcaster, and he was devastated. I was sitting next to him reading. So I, I imagine he is hurt by the criticism. I think Cummings, are, my understanding is he doesn't give a damn. He, he just thinks it's all irrelevant and he knows better as to how to win elections and, and that kind of thing. So, But I think they should be concerned about it because if these newspaper editors sense that their readers are responding to onslaughts on the government on the grounds mainly of competence, this government is in real trouble. Labour rarely wins in England on ideological grounds. But when it gets a Conservative government on competence, it wins. Wilson Mm -hmm. in 1994, Blair in 97. Blair basically won by arguing he would be more competent than Major. And that's what Starmer is doing at the moment, uh, framing an argument around competence and with the backing of uh, these newspapers. So, uh, yeah, I think they should be worried, but I agree with you. I suspect Cummings isn't. Steve, it must have been impossible to research the book without drawing comparisons between your uh, various subjects. Who do you think is the greatest prime minister of the ones you looked at? Well, greatest is partly subjective, isn't it? Because, you know, there are some who are... Yeah, I'm not going to let you get away with it. You have to pick No, no, I will ask you very... Very directly. Um, I think the one who, it's obvious, so it's become a cliche, but the one who achieved what she set out to achieve is Thatcher. She had, I mean, I don't agree with what she did, um, but she had in the mid-70s uh, a view of Britain and what had gone wrong and what needed to change, which is, I, I con- continue to believe, was simplistic and dangerous in many ways. But she went for it. And she also had a very smart reading of the space available to her. So early on, she was quite cautious. You know, Willie Whitelaw was her deputy who was from a very different wing of the Tory party. Um, But then she detected space when the SDP split from Labour in the early 80s. And then she really went for it, bringing in Norman Tebbett and all these people. And in a way, if you look at New Labour in 97, they had this huge majority, but they were very cautious and and fearful, partly for for reasons we've been talking about. The newspapers terrified them and uh, and the fear of losing, having lost so many in the past of elections. Um, So I think she she was the one who, in the modern era, 
achieve what she very clearly set out to do. Uh, Blair, to win three times for Labour, I think the art of winning for Labour should not be an underestimated skill, given that party's capacity to lose elections. Um, but he was less clear about what he wanted to do and why than she was. And he was less of a change maker than she was from the left. Hello, it's Andrew Harrison, the producer here. If you like Romaniacs, you will love The Bunker. Every Wednesday, the Romaniacs regulars plus new guests get together for a no-holds-barred political roundtable about anything and everything except Brexit. What we are definitely living through is a golden age of incompetence. We don't talk about the parts of the data pipeline that are the cause of misleading arguments. On Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, there's The Bunker Daily with one-to-ones and explainers on everything from the economy to the arts, culture, and even food. Italians are extravagant about food, but never wasteful. That's what I'm like. I'm a genius. That's what the J stands for, Donald J. Trump. That's The Bunker, with all your favourites from Romaniacs and more. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Mebrav, it's time for To the Barricades, where we choose a noble cause each week for Romaniacs listeners to rally behind. See Steve Richards as our guest this week. The choice is yours. Thank you. My cause is podcasts. I think they are fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Hurrah! (laughs) I worked on uh, podcasts, and it is uh, a joy when they arrive on a daily basis and they are free, but I think we should contribute to podcasts if we can in whatever form. I know uh, some servers now have the mechanism to do it. I think there is no, well, there are lots of good causes, let's be honest, but this is a good cause. Um, so if you like podcasts, this one, anyone, help them, contribute to them because they are such a life enhancing force. Well, here, here. Um, finally this week That's in the post, Steve. <laughs> yes. <laughs> finally this week, as Gavin Williamson becomes the first Secretary of State to execute so many U-turns so close to each other they have actually melded into a seamless, graceful pirouette. Tory backbenchers appear worried that the government doesn't know which way it's facing. One U-turn on easing lockdown measures in Greater Manchester happened quite literally while the Prime Minister was on his feet, refuting the charge that the government is prone to (laughs) U-turns. We've each picked one current policy from which the government might turn away with their next tyre-melting donut. Yasmin. Yeah, so um, I've chosen... um basically the 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 whole push by by the government to to get people back to the office i'm i'm not entirely convinced that it's one that they're they're going to keep pushing for they may not necessarily go back and say actually never mind stay home but but i think they could easily drop it and the reason i think um so is is basically because you know cases are still rising we obviously have kids going back to school soon if if there comes a point where where we need to bring something back i feel like having people doing what they've already been doing this whole time which is working from home is is probably the safest one. Um, yeah. As as Marina Hyde put it, leave home, forget the NHS, save Pret. Um, <laughs> is, is there a conflict, 
do you think, between urging people to buy avocado on toast as if it were war bonds and the conservative argument that young people are spending too much money on avocado on toast to save for a house? I mean, look, going out to eat has been elevated from like a lazy, like wasteful exercise uh, to to being that of national service. And yeah, I definitely think there's, there's, um, you know, this is a time obviously and understandably so we're all being urged to kind of, you know, go eat out even on a, you know, on a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday. Um, So, you know, maybe now is high time for us millennials and Gen Zers to berate the boomers about why they aren't buying more avocado toast and flat whites (laughs) and whatever it is, um, you know, where we're told endlessly that we shouldn't be buying. (laughs) Some have claimed that office work has been so popular for so long because it's the most efficient way to work. Is that still true? How much do we need face-to-face working? It's a good question because you know there's there's obviously no doubt that this crisis has you know it's it's been a massive I think global experiment. It's proven that working from home is certainly more doable than perhaps many of us realized at the start of this crisis. And I'll caveat, of course, you know this doesn't apply to all industries. Um, often cases, you know, just a lot of white collar office workers, but. At the same time, you know, I, I recall something that I think Jeremy Hunt said earlier today on on Sky. There, there's this. I think he said fizz and excitement uh, about working in the office. I don't quite know what he meant, but I think I got the the general gist, um, <laughs> which was that you know, even as someone who you know, I'm, I'm clearly of the position that you know, if, if we're gonna not be risky, work from home, you know, as long as we need to. That you know, of course, I, I don't think that working from home forever is is a permanent solution. I definitely think for some industries, um, you know, being around people, being able to exchange ideas face to face is really beneficial. I mean, I, for one, miss being able to spontaneously, you know, chat with my colleagues without having to schedule a Zoom call first. But, you know, perhaps more than anything, and I think I, I think this probably resonates with a lot of people, I miss my flat just being my flat. Like people say that they're tired of working from home, but I'm tired of living at work. Like I, oh, I think this- testify. <laughs> It's it's yeah it's just you know it's it's one of those things where I I think I think yes this this definitely has proven that I think working from home is more viable and and certainly down the road I think people may be able to to make a case for why they should do it if not all the time then certainly more often but you know I for one am am very much looking forward to getting back to the office um, when it's safe to do so. Ian, you think that it is the government's negotiating position with EU that is untenable. Surely you're not suggesting we can't have our cake and eat it too, <laughs> especially especially considering we just complained that it had a hair in it, sent it back to the kitchen and refused to pay the bill. Yes. No, I don't want to, you know, I mean, obviously, this is just a further sign of the fact that I hate Britain. Um, but nevertheless, <laughs> it does seem to me that, that this is a policy in which they are going to make some rather drastic U-turns. And that goes back to what I said at the start, right, that I ultimately do think they're going to I do think they're going to do a deal and to do a deal, they're going to give in on all the things that they said they, they're not going to give in on. So I think on fisheries, you already see them starting to give in because they're basically talking, I mean, insofar as they're talking about it at all, they're basically talking about where should we set the quota? Not do we get the chance to mess with the quota every year? Do we get to basically be Norway? I don't see much of that at the moment. I mean, even on level playing field where the British government has probably got its strongest case, I think, and, and actually a fairly reasonable case, I think even there they'll give in. And I think ultimately on state aid, they will give in. You know, they will probably look to some kind of joint mechanism or possibly the remedies body, you know, within the within the free trade agreement, 
design up to this stuff. And once they do, that's going to be the really interesting shit to watch. Because then you look at people like David Davis and Ian Duncan Smith, who are suddenly, you know, by peering through their own belly button for the nine months, have managed to find some new principle that they must absolutely stand up and die to and see whether, well, actually, this time, unlike last time, they may make more noise about it as it's happening rather than after the fact. So I am, look, this is dodgy, you know, this is dodgy stuff because a lot of people, and I think the majority opinion from most of the people who watch this stuff closely at the moment is that the most likely outcome is no deal. I'm still not in that position. I still think the most likely outcome is a deal. And if that deal happens, it's going to involve the meeting an awful lot of their fucking words. Mm. Ian, ever the optimist. Um, (laughs) Steve, Steve, your choice is mask wearing in schools and public uh, spaces. Explain. Well, there have already been at least one U-turn in relation to masks and then, of course, another one in relation to masks in schools. But at the moment, that U-turn is fairly limited. Uh, You know, it's in certain schools and in certain places. And I uh, anticipate another U-turn on that U-turn in the sense that I think it will become far more uh, wide-ranging I think head teachers will call for it, and then it will become more wide-ranging in other places as these lockdowns, local lockdowns, expand. So mm. that one, just in 10 seconds, the other one, they're putting forward a planning bill, which I don't think uh, will get a majority in the House of Commons, even with their huge majority. And so expect U-turns on, on that as well. Mm, that planning bill, I have to say, it is a shit show waiting to explode. And it is going to explode all over their fucking face. It is <laughs> amazing. You can see it happening right now in slow motion. It's it's absolutely going to blow up in their face. Steve, Thatcher famously sl- said the lady's not for turning, but ended up doing quite a bit of it. Is there an elegant way for governments to change their minds without it being labelled a U-turn? Sometimes, and you can turn it to your advantage by saying we've listened and we are the people's government and therefore we have done this. And be, oh, thank you so much for changing your mind. But this government, again, is unique in the way they do it. So all previous prime ministers neurotically looked ahead, planning for every eventuality. You know, a prime minister would sit down with his or her advisors the relevant minister. So if X happens, are we ready for what Y does and what Z says and so on? This Johnson doesn't think like that. He He's incapable of planning ahead. So they stick with a line defiantly, even when the policy looks increasingly doomed, until it becomes doomed, at which point they announce the U-turn. And uh, this is not an elegant way of doing it. And <laughs> yes, this is the opposite. The opposite of elegance, um, but it's the way they do it. They don't, they don't think ahead, and so I think that this is inelegant. You turning on an epic scale, yeah, which which is actually precisely what they're doing on my choice, which is the furlough scheme. They're saying no way are we going to extend it. Really digging their heels in, but yeah. France and Germany have extended it. Scotland is calling for it to be extended. Today, Keir Starmer called for it to be extended. And uh, during Prime Minister's question, Johnson had several of his backbenchers stand up and say, you should consider extending it because they have industries in their area like uh, aeronautics, which uh, cannot fully return to work yet. And so I suspect that's going to be one that they will uh, yield on. I agree. 
We've reached the end of the show. Many thanks to Ian and Yasmin and to our guest Steve Richards. The Prime Minister's leadership from Wilson to Johnson is out now at all good booksellers, be they virtual or physical. Listeners, don't forget, if you're a Patreon backer for the podcast, you'll get exclusive access to our next Zoom live show on Thursday, 24th of September. You just need to register for it. Details are on our Patreon page. You'll also have your name read out at the end of the podcast, underscored by a theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And it'll sound a little something like this. Hello and thank you from me to Alexander Ord, NPQ, Steve Pittman and V Bright. Thanks from me to Anne Wolf, Andrew Nelson, John Pendleton and Jonathan Flintham. And from me it's goodbye and thank you to Donna Hansen, Ulrich Hustad, Amy Luce and David Allen. See you all next week. Romaniacs was presented by Alex Andre with Yasmin Sahan and Ian Dunt. Audio production scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.